0: And turning in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is a letter of the Apostle Paul. It's six chapters long, and so it seems strange that we might jump into chapter 4. Now, even though it's been a couple of years since we preached through the opening chapters of this book, we, we did just in recent weeks have a helpful summary As we went through those solas of the Reformation, Mike reminded us from Ephesians 2 that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works, but by grace. And so the flow of the book of Ephesians is is a flow from, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from theology to practicality, from exposition to exhortation. The first three chapters tell us who we are, what is true about us in the gospel, and then these next three, beginning at chapter four, the end of the book tells us how we should live in light of gospel truth, how we live lives that are worthy of the gospel. And so listen to the word of God. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let me pray as we come to God in his word. Father, we pray that that you would root us in the power of the gospel, that you would show us the the height and depth and length and breadth of your love, that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would transform our lives, our our hearts, that we would be empowered by the work of your spirit in our lives to, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling that we have received, Lord, we pray for, for those that gather here this morning with, with great burdens, with sorrows, with struggles, with, with tragedies, Lord, that you would show them the hope, the, the eternal, everlasting, true hope to which we have been called, the hope which is ours when we come to Christ. Lord, for those that don't know Jesus as Savior, who have not confessed this one faith, do not, do not have him as their, as their one true Lord. I pray that even today you would break down the barriers to gospel belief. Lord, that you would give us confidence and hope in your word. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, now I want you to hear this description of the laziness and entitlement of youth. The laziness of kids, listen up. Laziness and entitlement, listen to this. Never have youth been exposed to such dangers of both perversion and arrest as in our own land and day. Increasing temptations, sedentary occupations, and passive stimuli just when an active life is most needed. A lessening sense for duty and discipline. All right. Now, perhaps you hear that as a critique of somebody sitting near you in this room. Maybe you hear it as a critique of an entire generation or generations younger than you. But, but I want to hear this as a critique of the church, of us, all of us. There is a lessening sense for duty and discipline among those who call themselves Christians. Christians. An increasing sense of perversion and, and distorted reality is a increasing temptations for us. And, and just to be fair, that quote was from 1904. So the generations they were critiquing are, are long dead. Because you see, it's, it's not really a problem with kids today. It's a problem with all of us. And it's a, a spiritual problem for us in the church as well. This sense of, of entitlement, of spiritual laziness, of, of this idea that, that, you know what? You know, as long as, I, as, long as it, it, it feels good to me, then, then I'll, I'll keep showing up. And maybe that is your view of, of how the church is supposed to work. When it's convenient for you, then you can be here. As long as it fits your schedule, as long as it gives you what you expected it to give you. You know, we'll connect with other people. It's as long as it's not too hard, as long as it doesn't take too much time, we'll stay as long as we think we're getting what we deserve. See, the Apostle Paul, having fervently, boldly proclaimed that the the gospel is a gospel by grace alone, that you receive this, this gift from God, doesn't say now, well, now then, put up your feet and coast through life. No, what, what is the hinge here between these two halves of, of, of this book, from the, the doctrines, the core truths, to the, the duty? What's, look, look, look with me back at verse 1, which is really a, a summary for us of, of this whole series, a summary of what will come in all of these chapters. The apostle says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The... The, the, the word order in the Greek makes it clear that, that he's saying, I urge you therefore. There, there's there's an, ur- an urgency to this, which we'll see in verse 3, where he says, make every effort. But there's an urgency here. He's saying, in light of everything we just learned in chapters 1 through 3, now I'm telling you to live a life worthy of the calling by which you have been called. The, the way the English translates it for us actually makes the sentence smoother. It, it, it's it's a little more abrupt in the Greek of "you have been the calling by which you have been called. The, the verb and the, the noun match. The calling that has been given to us. So we're, we're asked, as those who would follow Christ, to live lives worthy of the calling that we've been given. To, to live lives that match the expansiveness of the blessing that is ours. To live lives that match the joy of the hope that has been given to us. Now that's a big calling, a huge calling, but it's a gracious calling. The the then in in verse 1 is really that hinge, and this is the way a lot of the Apostle Paul's letters work. It's it's perhaps most clear here in Ephesians because it happens right in the middle of the book, where Paul says, let me make sure we have our theology clear. Let me make sure you understand how big and glorious and gracious this gospel is. Therefore, in light of that grace, therefore, because of that grace, therefore, out of the power of that grace, live a life that's worthy of the calling. I mean, think of what, what the Apostle Paul, if, if, you just, if you just flip and you, you scan and you heard some of it today already in our call to worship, in our assurance of pardon, some of the promises which Paul has already given in the book of Ephesians. We, in in chapter 1, we're told that we have been chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. We are recipients of God's grace. His generosity poured out on us. We have redemption. Our our lives have been purchased at the cost of Jesus Christ's blood. We have been forgiven of our sins. Chapter 2 tells us that we are made alive in Christ. We are saved by grace alone. We are united together in the church. We, we have the joy of, of giving praise to God. That's the calling. As big and ex- expansive as you can think of it, the, the height and width, width and, and depth and, and breadth of, of the love of God stretch endlessly. That's the love which was shown to you. That's the calling which God has placed on you. It's a gracious calling, but it's also a serious calling. Look at, look at verse 3, the way the apostle begins, the, the way the exhortation begins there. Make every effort. Wait, but I, you, you just told me that it was by grace alone, that it wasn't anything I do. There's nothing that I can do to deserve salvation, that I could, can earn salvation. But now Paul, and, and really the language is, is as strong as he can make it. This is the pounding on the pulpit, get your attention kind of moment. Make every effort. Do all the work necessary. So how can Paul say, say there's nothing required of you? And now, make every effort. It's in that therefore. Because you have been saved, there was nothing you could do, but Christ did it all. Therefore, make every effort. And you see, if we, if we, get, that, if we get that order mixed up, then we've distorted the gospel completely. If we think that I do good works, so that God will show me his love. So that God will forgive me. Then we'll continue to work and work and work, making every effort perhaps, working diligently but without any hope or joy because we'll always be in doubt. But if, if, if you've received the gospel by grace alone and therefore, after that, because of that, because the gift has been given to you, now you make every effort. You can place it in the, in the right, right context. See, Paul is calling believers to, to shake off the, the laziness of your human heart, to shake off the complacency of your, your spiritual walk, and to make every effort in pursuit of this life which is worthy of the gospel. But how? How do we do it? I mean, even if we see, we, we agree, I, I, that's what I want. But how do we do it? Now, now really, that's what we're going to essentially answer over the next couple of months, as we look at all of these chapters. But, but today, Paul gives us a start. How do we do it? How do we live a life worthy of calling? Look at verse 2. First, there's work we have to do in our own hearts. First, you have to deal with yourself. What does he say? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, those sound like such good churchy words, don't they? But these would have been shocking in the first century. You and I, even, even in, in our broader culture, we, we prize humility today. Even if it's a false humility or fake humility, we at least want people to, to, to make the effort to look humble. Those that are arrogant, we, we're, we're quick, quick to push aside. But in the ancient Roman world, humility was not a virtue. Humility was weakness. You're humble because you don't have the power to get up and do anything. You're humble because of your place in society, because you have no worth. That's what humility was viewed as by the, the, the secular culture in which these Ephesian Christians lived. And so when Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, this is a countercultural call to live a life based on love. And it's not weakness. Gentleness is, is not just letting anyone trample on you. It's the recognition that, that that you have power and dignity and worth because of the gospel, and yet you're willing to be gentle with others, to not lord it over them because of the gospel. The apostle calls us to, to be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so how? How do we live a life worthy of the calling? We have to look inward first. We have to look at our, our own hearts. See, because often we're, we're not very humble— we're not very patient, we're not very gentle, because we want other people to live up to our expectations, and people are terrible at meeting my expectations. I mean, maybe they're good at meeting yours, but they're terrible at meeting mine. I'm constantly disappointed, because nobody does it exactly the way I want it done. Nobody does it exactly when I want it done. Nobody does it for me. And so I'm not very patient. See, we're we're glad to, to help other people live up to the demands we place, but, but we don't want to do the work in our own hearts. And you see, Paul's starting point for this gospel work, this gospel urgency is, is start with yourself. Deal with your own heart. But how do we do it? How do we, how do we find this humility, this true gentleness, this, this real patience? It's because it's not something you can just work up yourself. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're back on the wrong side of the equation. If I just try harder, if I just do more, if I, no, what is Paul saying? Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's a gift given to you. You have been called by God. It is something God has done for you. And so how can we live lives of real humility? It's by looking to our Savior, the one with all power and authority, the one for whom every person he ever met was not merely subservient to him, but was created by him and for him. And yet what does Christ do? Humbles himself. He becomes obedient to a cross. Becomes obedient even unto death for us. We see in Christ true gentleness. He doesn't lash out at his enemies, but willingly, powerfully allows the sins of the world to be placed on him. In Christ, we see real patience. And so to find true humility, we need to find our identity in Christ. To find true gentleness, then we need to trust our future to Christ. Trust Him. That He will deal with with the struggles and sorrows of life that ultimately we can serve others because we have been served. To find true patience, we need to rely on Christ's strength. Christ humbled Himself. See, because what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the unity in the church, the bond that we have in the church, it begins first with the calling that we have, but then the place that we need to start is with character. Unity begins with character, by looking at your own heart, by pursuing humility and gentleness and patience, by bearing with others. But but Paul continues. We've already pointed out the urgency of verse 3. Make every effort. Get up and work for this unity. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. So we saw in verse 2 that there's an internal work that we need to do. Turning to Christ and finding our character in Him. Dealing with our own hearts. But but now verse 3 says, now get out there and find unity. Seek unity, pursue unity in the church. now most of us, most of us, the way we want to deal with unity, the, the way we, we, we deal with conflict and we seek unity, is much more passive than this. Ooh, this is this is a little awkward, and so we try and we try and find some sort of, some sort of peace or unity by, by sort of stepping back, stepping away, or we. Can jump in and, and just steamroll people to get what we want, and we think that that counts as unity. But Paul is not calling Christians, he's not calling the, the believers in Ephesus, he's not calling them to passivity. Again, make every effort to keep the unity. It's an active work, it's something you have to pursue, it's something you have to, to work at. Now, now, notice that it is a spirit given unity. It's not something that, that we can muster ourselves. It's not something that we begin with. It's, it's the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who brings real peace. Because you've been reconciled to God, and this is, this is chapter 2 of this book, because you have been reconciled to God, you are now reconciled to one another. Because the bond of peace has been, been forged by God himself, now keep that unity. You might think, well, if, if God has done the work, then I can just step back again and I don't, I don't have to do anything. No, what is Paul saying? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, which means you need to, to dive into relationships. That's why community groups are something that, that we're telling you aren't just like, well, if you can squeeze out a little bit of time in your, in your life. No, the elders here at Faith think this is central to growing in the gospel. Because you, to find unity, to find A connection with others, you have to spend time with them. You have to show gentleness to them. You have to be involved in the struggles and sorrows of life in order to to show patience, to bear with one another. The bond of peace is created by the gospel, created by the Spirit, but the work now is given to us in the Spirit to do. And then, then look at how the apostle now describes the unity of the church. Verses 4, 5, and 6, he, he repeats the, the word one seven times. But, but you'll, you'll even notice with me, as, as it's structured, just look at the way it's structured, that it's really structured in a, in a Trinitarian way. First, this cluster of the Spirit, then the cluster surrounding Jesus Christ, the Lord, then the, finally the Father of all. It's a Trinitarian formula, but it's, it's expanded to... To seven times the apostle is showing us where our unity is found. Look at, look at what he says in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. The apostle is describing the unity of the church. There is one body, the church. You are united together, called by God. There is one spirit at work in you. The Holy Spirit is active in the midst of the life of the church, in your life. And there is one hope, one eternal hope given to us. See, this is the real unity that we share. It's not just that we like each other, although in some instances that'll be true. In others, you're going to be patient and bearing with one another in love. See, our unity isn't just because we we like the same kinds of things. It's not merely because we live in the same neighborhoods. Our unity is here. We are one body, called by one Spirit, bonded together by the work of one Spirit, and we have one hope. But but do you hear the the good news in that? You and I, see, if, if we merely focus inwardly, if we merely focus on on ourselves, then yet, yet, remember, Paul is saying, look at your own heart. But if we merely do that, then we begin, to, we begin to test everything in the church based on how much it meets my demands, how much I personally like it. But if we, if we, if we see the one hope to which we are called, if we see that we have the message that the world is desperate for, then we can find unity in our purpose, in our mission, in our ministry. See, it's not hard to see the, the fact, as you watch in the news, the, the sorrow, the chaos, on, on, on the grand scale, on the global scale, on the national scale. And it can feel overwhelming. Like, what do I do? We might even feel like, I'm, I'm not sure everyone here would do what I think they should do. But, but do you see what you and I really have to bind us together? We are one body with one spirit, and we have one Hope, this is the gospel message, an eternal, everlasting message that the world needs. The apostle continues in verse 5. He says, There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. See, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. He is the one who died in our place. He is the one through whom everything was created. He is the one who has now been exalted to the heavens as the king of the universe. There is one Lord. There is one faith. The faith given to us. The the truths that we believe. And there's one baptism. See, there's, there's only one church. There's only one way to be identified with the church through the waters of baptism. Now, we have to admit here that this This is much more exclusive, much more narrow than our culture would be comfortable with, perhaps even than than you're comfortable with. To say that there is only one Lord, you you mean just one. There's only one way? There's one faith, one, one set of truths you have to believe? One core story that is true for every single person everywhere? There's only one baptism, one way to be joined to God and his community. See, see culturally, this sounds like, well, wouldn't it be nicer to say that, like, there's, there's one Lord for, for you? There's one faith as long as it works for you? I mean, we want to add the conditions to it to make sure that we're not excluding anyone. But, but everyone's, everyone's belief system is exclusive. It has to be. Even if you want to include everyone, you are excluding lots of people by saying, well, you can only come in if if you denounce what you actually believe. Because lots of the world's religions, not just Christianity, make contradictory kinds of claims. And so all of us are are exclusive in one sense, but but Christianity, Christianity is the best kind of exclusive. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, one religious upbringing. He doesn't say one ethnic group of people. He doesn't say one socioeconomic status. He doesn't say one uh, cultural attainment or one educational degree. No, what does he say? It's one faith. It's a core set of truths for everyone. See, Christianity is the, the best kind of exclusive because it's offered to everyone. Everyone can be saved through Christ, He is the Lord of all. He is the rescuer, the king, the redeemer, the one who gave his life for us. So do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? And that's a question for you if, if, if you're wrestling with whether or not this could be true. This passage is telling you Jesus Christ is the one Lord. There is one faith, one set of gospel truth that you are, you are called to believe in. But, but that question is Jesus Christ your Lord, is a question for all of us. See, do we really believe it? See, when we submit ourselves, humble ourselves before Christ, then it's easy to find unity with others because we're on our knees in worship and prayer together. We're we're seeing the, the gospel truth that we have. This one faith, this is the one hope for the world. This is the message that we need to proclaim. And the Apostle concludes this this Trinitarian formula. We've moved from the one Spirit to the one Lord to one God and Father over all, in verse 6. The God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. But The Apostle is, is showing us the supremacy of God, that this gospel message, this authority of God, this grace of God is for everyone, everywhere. This gospel is for all of our lives. What the apostle is telling us is the life that you have been called to is the the greatest challenge imaginable. And so you have to make every effort to do it. You have to live a life worthy of the calling. It's the greatest challenge imaginable, but it's also the greatest joy imaginable. Because what do you have? You have a relationship through one spirit with Jesus Christ the Lord in loving fellowship with God who is Father over all. You have one hope to proclaim to the world. See, the apostle is telling us, therefore, in light of the gospel, live knowing these blessings are true. Live in the fullness of gospel hope with joy facing the future. Deal with your own heart, but then stand up and make every effort with your fellow believers in pursuit of the gospel, in pursuit of the mission of the church. What we're being told is that, the church, you are more than what you have become. There's, there's a, a scene in the classic Disney movie, The Lion King. It's about a lion who becomes a king. All right? And, and young Simba's father, who was the king before him, has died. And so the, 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 the crazy monkey... Claims to be able to show Simba his, his father, and, but his his father's already dead. And, he, and so he takes him to this, this, this pool of water, and, and Simba leans over, and he looks in. And the crazy monkey says, Do you see him? And Simba says, No, that's that's just my reflection. So Rafiki says, No, 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 look look harder. And then the... The, the scene changes, and he, and he sees not merely his reflection, but he sees the, the face of his father reflected back to him. Do you see? Do you see it? But then the, the wind howls in the, in the scene, and the, the sky darkens. And in the, the rumbling thunder, Simba hears the voice of his father, which is really the best voice in movies. It's James Earl Jones. Speaking from the clouds, he says, Simba, you have forgotten. And the the young lion argues, no, 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 no! how could I? But his, his father is firm. You have forgotten who you are. You are more than what you have become. Remember. Remember who you are. Now, with Disney magic, they have a, dead, talking lion. But do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? Church. Church, you are more than what you have become. You you are, look, look and see the reflection. Who do you see staring back at you? It's Jesus Christ himself. When you look to your, your brother, why can you be patient with him? Because Christ is in him. Church, you are more than what you have become, and so listen to the voice of the Father speaking through the the Apostle Paul. Church, you are chosen in Christ. You are forgiven by Christ. You are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. Church, become who you are in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for these bold truths. Lord, I pray that you would shake us out of our spiritual slumber. That we who have been tempted to coast along, that we who have been tempted to to take the the gospel for granted, that we who have been tempted to take the the church and its ministry for granted, Lord, that you would shake us from our slumber. Lord, that we would, with, with power and boldness, live lives worthy of the gospel worthy of the calling that we, we have received. And so make that gospel real to us. Lord, we pray that you would do that even now for those who have not acknowledged Jesus Christ to be their Lord, to be their Savior or Rescuer. That even now as we pray, as the service concludes, as we sing gospel truth, as we proclaim the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would see Jesus as Savior and Lord. Make us who we are meant to be in Christ. Help us to see him reflected in our brothers and sisters in the gospel. Let us see the the hope that we have. Let us share it with joy, with exuberance, with power. Where we come praying in the name of our one Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.